Merry Christmas to everyone. I love Christmas. Really sad that the season's coming to an end. We've had our tree up since like the first week of November, so going to be sad to take that thing down. But uh, let me introduce myself. My name is Jordan. I'm the director of youth here at the shore. Really excited to continue on in our Christmas series called Christmas Presents, where we're going through the book of John chapter 1, as well as some other texts. Um, Speaking of books, another book that's really great is the Chronicles of Narnia. You guys remember that SNL skit? The Chronic What Calls of Narnia? Anybody? Anyways, in, in the book Prince Caspian, there's a really great dialogue I love between Lucy, who's just this little girl, if you're unfamiliar, and she has not seen Aslan for a while. Aslan is a lion who represents God, and they have this great dialogue, and I'm not really going to do the voices, but Lucy says, Aslan, you're bigger. And Aslan says, that is because you are older, little one. Not because you are? I am not. But every year you grow, you will find me bigger. The point is, our spiritual growth is tied to the size of our view of Jesus. And this season, and in all of our lives really, if we can get away from a small, weak picture of who Jesus is and get into the fullness and glory of the picture of him in the scriptures, then we will be invited into the deepest, most meaningful life possible. And so how do we get there? Well, our text is going to tell us, and it's really quite simple, believe. So as we've been going through the book of John, let me give you some some quick background. The first 18 verses of John's gospel are basically a prologue, which is going to set up the rest of the book of John. And here's the interesting thing about John in comparison to the other synoptic gospels. John doesn't waste any time in declaring who Jesus is. Like, he's not holding his cards close to his chest, whereas in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you maybe get a genealogy, or you get the story about Elizabeth getting pregnant, and then it's not until later on in those books that you find out exactly who Jesus is, that he's the Son of God, that he's the Christ, the light of the world. No, John is too eager for you to know who Jesus is, and so he comes out swinging, verse 1, saying, "...in the beginning was the Word." being Jesus. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So right away, John's like the Son of God, the Promised One, the Messiah, the One who is eternal and has been co-eternal with the Father is Jesus, and He is here. Right away, Jesus is the Creator of all things. You've been created by Him, for Him. And so we can kind of understand our purpose here on earth because we've been created by the word, by Jesus, for Jesus. And that makes sense to us as to why we can't seem to be fully satisfied long with anything else in creation. Because we have not been made by our work for our work. We're not made by our spouse for our spouse. We're not made by our friends for our friends by our money, for our money, our status, for our status. No, we have been created by Jesus, for Jesus, and our souls will never find rest and true, deep meaning until we find him. You see what I mean? John is coming out strong. He's not like, here's a genealogy, which is good in and out of itself, 
but he's not wasting any time. He's an aggressive, passionate man who comes out saying, in the coming of the word, in the coming of Jesus Christ, in the incarnation of the Son, a light has shone in the darkness, and darkness will not overcome it. And talk about what good news that is, because if you think about Jesus and the darkness put towards him, it was pretty dark, wasn't it? Think about Jesus on the cross. You had the power of sin and death. That's pretty dark. You had Satan and the demonic principalities. That's dark. You had the powers of the secular government, the Roman Empire, the power of the religious establishment and the Pharisees and the Sadducees. You had the power of the foolish, failing disciples. But when Christ rose from the grave, his light shone in the darkness, and the darkness has not and will not overcome it. And so in our first verse today, John 1, 9, he says, The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world, and now that light is here. That's what we celebrate at Christmas. And so if you have darkness in your life today, maybe it's tied to Satan and the demonic principalities, then know that a light has shone in the darkness. And the darkness will not overcome it. Maybe you have some darkness into your life tied to some sort of relationship or secular scheme against you. Know that a light has shone in the darkness and the darkness will not overcome it. Or if it's your personal failures as a follower of Christ, know that a light has shone in the darkness and the darkness will not overcome it. Let's read the entirety of our text today. John 1, verse 9 to 13. It says, The true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So short text here, but there's some depth. And I believe the application of it, end of this entire Advent season, and really in the entirety of our lives is really quite simple, which has kind of been hard for me to accept this week because as someone who preaches and teaches, I'm always trying to think of original, profound applications to help you in your journey. But I kept hearing God tell me, no, don't overthink it. It's simple. It's a simple application that showed up in our text last week that shows up all over the book of John and right in the middle of our text today and that is to believe in Jesus. A simple word, believe. And I want to tell you and emphasize with you why it needs to stay simple and not get complex, okay? In John 20, later on in John, he says, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. If you look back into last week's text, in verse 6, you see that there's another man named John, another man who was sent from God, and that's referring to John the Baptist, not to be confused with John who wrote this, this book of the Bible, okay? So we have two Johns. 
You have this pre-Jesus John, John the Baptist, whose message was all about, hey, Jesus is coming. He's the Son of God. He's the Christ. Life is found in him. Light is found through him. And then you have this post-ascension John writing here, and his message similarly is Jesus is the light. Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the Son of God, the Savior of the world. And both of them bear witness of who Jesus is by the way they live their lives. And both of their lives end up kind of crazy and kind of tragic because they refuse to renounce their faith in Jesus. John the Baptist gets arrested and beheaded. John the Apostle refused to renounce his faith in Jesus, and church history tells us that because of that, they boiled him alive to try to kill him, but he just wouldn't die, and so that freaked everyone out, as it would freak everyone out, and so they exiled him to the island of Patmos, where he's visited by an angel of the Lord and Jesus himself, and that's how we get the book of Revelation, And so both bear witness with their life about the light of Christ. They testify about Jesus, one before him, one after. They say that Jesus is the Savior of the world. He is the Son of God, that in him is life, and outside of him there is only darkness. And you have these two Johns, and their message is the same. Believe in Jesus. And what's interesting to note here about this verb believe is that never when it's used in the gospel of John is there ever a qualifying adjective or adverb in front of it. It's always believe. It's not radically believe. It's not intensely believe. It's not wholeheartedly believe. It's not with all your might believe. Like there's all sorts of words we can put in front of it to intensify the meaning, deeply believe, sincerely believe. Yet there's never anything put in front of it. Why? Because to believe is to receive a gift from God. Our belief, Ephesians tells us, comes as a gift from God. And the second you put a word in front of it, it all of a sudden seems like we are in control. And we can do some of it ourselves. And so if our application today become intensely believe with all your might, then all of a sudden it seems like this is in my hands. Like my salvation's in my control. But, but if I simply believe, then I have to receive the gift of belief from the Lord. But if I have to intensely believe, then it's up, part of this is up to me. And I don't want any of it to be up to me. John's not going to have any of that. It's a currency that God will not accept. And I know in the context of our culture, this, this can be challenging. Because here's my experience as, as a Christian and someone who has walked alongside other Christians as we try to just stumble along and try to figure out this life. Most of us just want to be told what to do in a real practical way. You know, like we want a list. We want a checklist. We want a vision board. We want to know exactly what to do. What's the game plan here? Tell me what to do. This is what it means to be a human, Right? Let me, tell you, let me tell you a story, okay? You've probably heard this. The Bible tells us that Jesus does this miracle where he feeds 5,000 people. Are you familiar with this? He feeds 5,000 people basically with a little kid's lunch. So there's all these people, they've been listening to Jesus teach all day. Then the disciples come and they say, people are hungry. 
we got to send them out of here to get something to eat. And Jesus was like, no, we don't. You feed them. And they're like, all we have is a few fish and some bread. And Jesus is like, that'll do. And so Jesus blesses it, and they begin to tear it and feed the crowd, and every single person eats until they're full. Afterwards, they're able to fill up 12 baskets full of leftovers. And so this crowd then starts to follow Jesus wherever he goes. They're like, oh, this is my guy. He just fed me. He filled me up. This is the guy I want to be with. He filled up my stomach. And this is what Jesus has to say to them in John 6, 26. Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Now, there's, there's a lot there in itself, but Jesus is basically saying, the reason you're following me is not because you love me and want a relationship with me. You're following me because I fulfilled a need for you, because I filled your stomachs. It's talking about coming to Jesus, not to want Jesus, but to want what Jesus can do for you. So it's using him. It's not loving him. It's Jesus. I want you to to fix my marriage. Jesus, I want that promotion. I want more money. I want my rights. I'm coming to you, Jesus, because I want you to do these things for me. And Jesus calls them out on this. Like, how uncomfortable would that be to have Jesus look you in the face and stop you and say, here's why you're here. You're here because I could fill your belly. You don't love me. Your intent is not to follow me. You just want full stomachs. And look at how they respond to him. And and I see us in this so deeply. Verse 27, Jesus continues. He says, Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Verse 28, this is so us. Then they said to him, okay, what must we do to be doing the works of God? How do we fix this? How do I clean myself up? And so here's how this plays out. We get, by God's grace, we get convicted by the Holy Spirit or a friend who lovingly comes alongside us. We get busted in whatever selfish religiosity we're expressing. The Spirit of God confronts us in that, saying that you're just using Jesus. You don't truly love him. You just want him to give to you. You're treating Jesus like a genie in a bottle. He's not your Lord and Savior. And when you get convicted by that, Jesus is saying our first response is, okay, tell me, tell me what to do. How do I fix this? Should I memorize more scripture? Should I I give more? Should I be a good guy? Should I go volunteer somewhere? And look what Jesus says to them in verse 29. Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. That response should drastically change how we think about our interaction with God and his interaction with us. What are the works of God? Tell us what to do. What do I do, Jesus? And Jesus says, this is the work of God. Believe. Not radically believe. Not intensely believe. Not with all your might believe. Just believe in Jesus. And maybe you're like, thank God I can just 
believe and then do whatever I want. Okay, that's, that's not what I'm saying. You're not hearing me there. This idea of belief, simply believe, is what the, the reformers were talking about in sola fide. If you don't know what I'm talking about, quick Google search, reformers, sola fide. It'll clear up everything. When they're talking about believing by faith alone, that's it. We don't add anything to faith. We just believe. And when we believe, the Bible then says that the Spirit of God indwells in us. And we become transformed from the inside out. And so then we become, we begin to want to do what Jesus wants us to do. We begin to hate our sin with a passion. And when that happens, we have now been justified, which will lead us into being sanctified, being more and more in the likeness of Jesus, which will lead to living a certain way as an extension of our inward transformation. It doesn't go the other way. We don't live a certain way to gain inward transformation. No. Believing in Jesus alone will transform us inwardly, and that leads to a new meaningful life. And that's not all we're going to read about the benefits of believing. When you believe, you also become adopted sons and daughters of God. Like, talk about divine purpose and identity. Look with me at verse 12. We're going to kind of go in reverse order here. Verse 12. It says, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Okay, but he goes on. Who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So you and I become children of God via belief. For all who did receive him and who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. What does, that, what does he mean? How does that look? Well, he actually tells us in verse 13 how that doesn't happen as opposed to how it happens, okay? He says, you and I do not become believers because of your bloodline. So he's saying you are not born a Christian. No one has been a Christian their whole life, all right? Follow me here. Your parents' faith is your parents' faith. Because they are Christians does not make you a Christian. Their faith is their own. It's not yours. Now, what your parents may have done for you by God's grace is surrounded you with little bits of kindling, read the Bible to you, prayed for you, and then the Holy Spirit ignited that into belief. And that's led you to be who you are today. But you are not a Christian by your bloodline simply because your parents are Christians. Your parents' faith is their own faith. You have not been born by human blood, he says. That's not how you become believers. But then John doubles down on that, and he says, not only were you not born of human blood, but you have not been born of the will of the flesh or the will of man. Meaning that our white-knuckled, type-A, try-harder, checklist-checking drive where we say, I can do this, I can earn my salvation, I can work for it, I can do better, I can be a good person, I'm going to be moral, I'm going to be better than everyone else, that cannot save us either. Our best efforts to clean ourselves up morally are not acceptable to God when it comes to salvation. That's what he's saying. He says, if you believe, you become children of God. 
That's it. Through no act of your own. And that belief is a gift from God. And just personally, I'm thankful that it doesn't take any of my own work because I would fail again and again. So praise God for Jesus in the cross. Now there's an issue that comes along the way that John's going to tell us about because for many, there is either an unrecognized understanding or there is an unwanted understanding of who Jesus is. People either don't want this or they cannot see it, okay? Let's talk about unrecognized understanding or revelation first. That's verse 10. He was in the world and the world was made through him Yet the world did not know him. There's a great quote here by uh, 18th century, I I believe, British theologian, Brooke Westcott. He says, No man is wholly destitute of the illumination of the light. In nature and life and conscience, it makes itself felt in various degrees to all. Okay, let me put that in English for you. Westcott's argument is no one anywhere on earth. Not a single person can say that they haven't had some experience with Jesus Christ, with the light of the world. He says this is true because everyone has creation. This is true because everyone has been made in the image of God. And this is true because everyone has a conscience. Let me show you a text here, Psalm 19. Verse 1 and 2, it says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. So there's something in the heart of humankind being created by Jesus where we can look at the beauty of creation and our hearts end up longing for something. It aches for something. This is what C.S. Lewis talks about a lot, about this human ache and awe in the human soul around creation. When there's a spectacular sunset or sunrise or you're standing looking at a big mountain range or the ocean or something beautiful, a natural wonder, and we become aware of how actually small we are, we feel goosebumps, we feel in awe, and we can't help but think there's got to be something bigger out there. That's what's happening. It's God revealing himself. It's the heavens declaring the glory of God so that wherever you are in the creative order, whenever you see beauty, you're learning something about the creator. Whenever you're like, gosh, that's so beautiful, that's the heavens showing you the glory of God. And so that's why, that's why people travel all the time and flock all over the world to see natural wonders, so their heart can be in awe and feel like there's something bigger out there. Paul says something similar in Romans 1.20. He says, For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. He says nobody has an excuse not to see God. Why? Because you can see him everywhere. You can see it all around you. But what happens is we just blow past it or or don't consider it or or justify it in some way to say that it can't be God so that we don't have to believe. This is 
recognized revelation. God communicating to his people and his people missing it. And so we have unrecognized understanding, but we also have unwanted understanding. Look at verse 11, talking about Jesus. It says, He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. So here we have Jesus putting on flesh, becoming a man, walking among us. Then it's an unwanted revelation. So before it was unrecognized, we don't quite understand what that is. But then Christ comes, we see his message, we see the gospel, we hear it, and now it's just unwanted. Where you see and you hear the gospel, you come to church, you hear someone say that Jesus died for your sins, but you just don't care. And this might be happening right now. Like, Maybe some of you in here are like, okay, I understand. I see. I understand Jesus died for me. That's great. Just believe. But many of you might be like, I get it, but I'm good. No, thank you. For Jesus to be revealed as the Son of God, the Christ, the life, the light of the world, and to be rejected is due to a lot of different reasons. But I think there's two for us this morning. And the first one is this idea that, that we don't need Jesus, that we got this, that we're doing all right, so we don't need Jesus. Like, that just sounds complicated, and I don't want to have to give him my whole life. I don't need him. And, and the reason we might think that is because maybe we think the type of currency God accepts is the currency of morality or just being a good person. So we don't think we need Jesus because we're doing great and we can look around and see a bunch of imbeciles around us, people failing all over the place, and we're better than them. And so then we justify ourselves by measuring our strengths against other people's weaknesses. So we don't need Jesus because we're doing great, because we're under the assumption that that's what Jesus accepts, but it's not. The prophet Isaiah says it as bluntly as you can when he says all of our righteous deeds to try to earn salvation and earn our way to heaven, God sees those as filthy rags. And so when you're like, I don't need Jesus, I don't do bad things, I'm better than this guy, I stay true to my word, I don't need Jesus to save me, God says those are just filthy rags. It's not what God accepts in regards to salvation. It's not the currency that's going to get you into glory. And if it's not that that's making you not want this, it's this belief that God will reject us, that God does not want us, so we will therefore reject him first. That our lives are so dark, that we've done things that are so bad, that our family has been so wicked, that we think God couldn't possibly save us. That all that he's done, that dying on the cross for our sins, that, that can't be for me. You don't know what I've done. And I'm going to be blatantly honest with you because I love you and care about your soul but I believe that that position is one of the most arrogant positions possible. That you have somehow outsinned the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's one of the most arrogant things you could say. Because the Bible reads, 
as a who's who of men and women who are an absolute train wreck. And whatever you've done, I don't know that it compares to these people. And God not only loves them, forgives them, but he uses them to do some of his greatest works imaginable. So none of us could ever say, not me. Like, I could go through tons here. Let me just give you a few. How about King David, who committed adultery and then had the woman's husband killed to cover it up? Who God later calls a man after my own heart. Who else? Moses kills the guy with his bare hands, continually freaking out, having outbursts of anger. When things don't go his way, he starts breaking stuff and smacking his staff against things, and God uses him in incredible ways. Who else? You got a a dark family history you don't think Jesus can redeem? Well, how about Ruth? who is in the lineage of Jesus, by the way, who is the great-granddaughter of an ancestral relationship. I don't know what your family tree is like, but I'm guessing it doesn't get that dark. I could do this all day, but (laughs) just know that there aren't many out there who aren't an absolute train wreck when God comes pulls them in, loves them, forgives them, and then empowers them and uses them. Why? Because we're not children by our own efforts. We're not children by our resumes. We're not children of God by our own willpower, but by God's power. That's the way he does it. He always picks the weak and frail, and that's amazing. So he can choose you, whatever you're dealing with. The cross is for you. And I love that. And so here we are today. We find ourselves in this moment where this text, this message, isn't applied to people in the past. It's applied to us right now. And maybe there's some who are watching this or listening who have never really understood the gospel that out of the greatest act of love, God sent his son Jesus to come and die on the cross for you so that by no work of your own, you could be saved, forgiven, get to live in eternity with him in heaven, become children of God. Maybe you never really understood that. You've always thought this whole thing, Christianity, was about this long list of things we had to check off to be a good person. And so you've been avidly trying to do that. And let me just ask, like, how do you even know where you, where you stand if that's the, the life you live? Like, there's no scoreboard. There's no scale. Maybe you've never heard, no, it's not a long list of things to do. It's simply believe. Believe that out of an act of love, Jesus took your place on the cross. And so we allow the indwelling of the Holy Spirit to move you from one degree of glory to the next. And what I love about us as a a church and about people in general who Jesus chooses is that we all start in a completely different place, right? Which means we're all going to look a little bit different, which should cause all of us to extend grace to one another. 
Like maybe you grew up in a home by God's grace where you guys were memorizing scripture every week. You sang hymns together. You had family devotionals and Jesus was all you talked about in your house. So when the Holy Spirit comes and ignites that kindling in your heart, on the surface, you're probably going to look pretty far along in your faith, right? But what about someone who had none of that and grew up in the darkest home imaginable, yet the Spirit of God shows up and grants belief, are they going to look a little bit different? Sure. But are they behind? In no way. That's why we should be so gracious to one another. As we, by the Holy Spirit, are sanctified by God in Christ. It means that we should be more patient with one another than the world thinks we should be. And so as I begin to wrap this up, I just want to join with John and John saying, believe. Just believe. That's the answer to pretty much every question you have about life right now. And if you're like, I don't even, like, what, how does that look? Well, there's a great prayer in the Bible. It's so simple. Mark 9, 24, a man says to Jesus, I believe Help my unbelief. And when the man said that to Jesus, Jesus, Jesus didn't rebuke him. He wasn't like, what do, you, what do you mean by that? How could you believe yet not believe simultaneously? If you believe, why do I have to help you with your unbelief? I thought you already believed. No. Jesus hears that prayer and he honors it and he calls it a prayer of great faith. I believe Help my unbelief. And Jesus says, absolutely. I believe. Help my unbelief. And when we say that, we are met with kindness. We are met with patience. We are met by the steadfast love of God. We will not be able to, to buy him off with our good deeds. Whatever does not proceed from faith and belief cannot please God. And so I'm here with John and John pleading with you, why would you bank on your morality? Just believe Jesus has already done the work. We just believe and God will be enough. Brenner has this, this great quote. He says, come into union with the word who made you and you will come to life. You came from him. Please come back to him. You were made for him. The result of this reunion will be more than human existence. It will be human life. Notice how he capitalizes the word life. It's because he's using the Greek word for life, zoe, which is a common word in the Gospel of John. And it signifies life not simply being the existence of being a human, no, but rather deep, meaningful life. That's the invitation in front of you and I today. Deep, meaningful life. And so I stand here with Lucy this Christmas season asking Aslan, how does my picture of you grow bigger?
How do I get this deep, meaningful life that is promised for me? And Aslan replies, believe. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank you for the light that you sent into our darkness that sets us free, sets us free from the powers of darkness, from our own flesh, that gives us a hope that is steadfast and reliable. We don't always know what the future holds, and that's why you gave us promises, and so we thank you for that. I believe, Lord, but help my unbelief. I pray that that prayer would echo throughout the North Shore this morning, and that you would penetrate the areas of our lives where we have a hard time believing in you, where we have a hard time believing that you're enough. We have a hard time finding full satisfaction in you. I believe, help my unbelief. I thank you that it's simple, Lord. Though I confess it is hard, and I can't do it alone, and I need your power, we need your power. Just pray that you would come alongside your sons and daughters and empower them. Set them free from trying to earn their way towards you. We thank you for this season that you came, Jesus, to give us hope. And we thank you that you are coming back and so you have promised us a greater future and you have not and will not abandon us on our way there. So we just pray that your light would shine greatly in our lives and that we would be reflections of you wherever we are and that many would just come to know you in a powerful way. Help us, Lord. We need you. I believe. Help my unbelief. In Jesus' name, amen.